Our scripture reading for this evening comes from the first epistle of Peter, chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 1 to 12 as the context for tonight's message, uh, but particularly focusing on verses 9 and 10. First Peter 2, verses 1 to 12. This is God's holy word. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and anyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you love your word, and you love when we come to your word eagerly, expectantly, reverently, with joy, to search through it as to search for hidden treasures, to draw all the sweetness we can out of it. So would your spirit minister to us these things through your word tonight. You are the true God. You are eternal life. And we look to you tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Who are you? That's an important question to be able to answer. Uh, Who are you? What's your identity? And this is important because your identity and how you might identify yourselves to others in large part determines the sorts of responsibilities that you take on. And it determines what sorts of obligations you have upon yourself. Uh, We identify in different groups, whether family or vocation, what have you. In in the family I come from, the Davison family, to identify as a Davison means that you, for one, have a responsibility to be a good storyteller, and for two, it means you have the responsibility to be at least a somewhat competent volleyball player. Those are the sort of Davison responsibilities. Or maybe you, uh, if you identify as a doctor, there's certain responsibilities you have to people in light of that identity that you have. Or an accountant, there, if you become a certified accountant, you have certain ethical responsibilities, a code of conduct, something you have to live up to that goes along with the title or the identity you've been given. 
And we see in culture that really the higher your identity is, if we can use that sort of language, the increased is your responsibility load. Or to paraphrase a famous line, you could say that with great privilege comes great responsibility. Uh, this came home to me a while, a couple years ago, when you remember that show The Crown came out about Queen Elizabeth, which of course I watched because I'm a good Canadian who still has a queen. And what struck me in that show was just the weightiness of seeing a young girl who's given such a high identity, the highest really in the land of queen, and just what that meant for her to embrace this identity and the weight of responsibility she took upon herself to say, I am called to lead a people, and not just to lead a people politically, but actually to set an example for a people of nobility, of a virtuous way of life. And there was things she had to give up, things she had to resist from in order to live with this responsibility she had been given due to her identity. And the truth is that for the Christian, our identity in Christ is higher than any royalty in this world. The privileged position we've been given as the church of God is higher than any earthly identity and carries such great and joyous responsibilities. And the problem is that I think too often, we as Christians content ourselves with maintaining a low identity. We're just lowly, we're just sinners, we're just unworthy. And there's a truth there that we are sinners, but we have been called out of that. We've been called and seated in heavenly places with the Lord Jesus Christ. So while there is a truth in our lowness, there's an also equally great truth in our highness. How high of a privileged position we've been given. And the New Testament primary identity given to the people of God is more so that of saint than of sinner. One who is truly set apart and called to high things in God. We're called then, because we've been given this position, in various places Paul says things like, walk worthy of the calling that you've received. Or to let's live up to what it is that we've already attained. And so as we learn to embrace and go deep in our identity, then we'll rise to our high responsibility, but never forgetting our beautiful story, that story of grace that took us from rags to riches, from poverty to preciousness. And so those are the three points we're going to be looking at tonight, is what is our identity, what is our responsibility, and what is our story? I want to see this in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 are the verses we're looking at. Uh, the context here is Peter is speaking to the church, and if you remember uh, last month when I preached, we covered a few verses earlier than this, but what he's been talking about is that coming to Christ, the church is being built up like living stones, on Christ, the cornerstone, as a foundation, united to him by faith. But that unbelievers, as was prophesied, they've rejected Christ, they've disbelieved Christ, and they've disobeyed Christ, and the stone has become a stumbling block to them. But for God's people, who have embraced Christ by faith, they are being built up on him. Through faith in him, through obedience to him, we build our lives on Christ. And for the one that has been built on Christ, for the church that has been built on Christ, we now receive this new identity that he tells us in verse 9. This is who we are now in Christ. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own 
possession. This is the identity we've been given. And interestingly, Peter is really picking up here on language from the Old Testament, on descriptions God actually applied to Israel. And you'll notice there's a lot of similarity in language. In Exodus 19, verses 5 to 6, here's what God says to the people through Moses. Therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples of among all the peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests a kingdom of priests and a holy nation these are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel and we see a similar uh, idea in Deuteronomy 26 and Peter here is picking up on this old covenant language and applying it to new covenant realities and although this language was applied to old testament Israel It's so much more true of the people of God who've been given the Holy Spirit that we may embody these realities in a much greater and fuller way. So this identity outlined here, I want us to look at each of these four items and see what it says about who we are as a church and who we are as believers in Christ. So our identity. We all have an identity and our personal identity, how we identify ourselves to others, is usually an amalgam of a couple different group identities that when you mix these groups together, we come up with our specific personal identity. Uh, Here's what I mean. If I was to introduce myself to you in my most basic introduction, it would probably be something like this. Hi, I'm JC Davison. I'm a seminary student, and I'm from Vancouver, Canada. These are basic identifying groups. It's the who are you, what do you do, where are you from, questions. And I'm actually telling you a bunch of group identities here. So when I say I'm J.C. Davison, I'm identifying my family identity. I'm part of the Davison clan. And if you knew my family, that might mean something to you. You would know Davisons have certain characteristics, certain personality traits that are usually quite noticeable and prominent. Um, A family identity. And when I say I'm a seminary student, I'm talking about a sort of vocational identity. Here's how I spend my time. Here's what I do. That tells you something of my interests, something about what I'm engaged in and what I think is important. When I say I'm from Vancouver, Canada, uh, when I say Canada, I'm identifying my national identity. So that says something about my allegiances. What flag do I pledge allegiance to? Uh, What government uh, has say in my life? What Uh, Political issues, do I care about? Where am I thinking in my mind? But when I'm saying I'm from Vancouver, I'm not just identifying the part of Canada. And if any of what you here have talked to me, I've told many of you that in many ways, I identify more as a West Coaster than a Canadian because there's a culture on the West Coast, whether America or Canada, that says something different about me. Uh, that, you know, I like good coffees or certain kinds of music and certain kinds of outdoor activities and adventures. Uh, So when I say Vancouver, I'm actually referring partly to a cultural identity. So all these identities come together. So you see my family identity, my vocational identity, my cultural identity, and a national identity. And I want to show you that all these four identities are found in these four terms that Peter is using. So let's look at them in turn. We'll look at them all descriptively and then we'll apply them all later on. 
So first, Peter calls us a chosen race. Uh, This term race is not super well translated. It's a word, genos. You might recognize genome, uh, a genetic grouping. And so it's actually more the word kindred. What people stock do you come from? Maybe you guys have fallen for those commercials and gotten those 23andMe packets. You want to know something about your people. What is your genetic inheritance? And so it's talking about a chosen kindred of God, a chosen family of God. And how is this a beautiful identity for the church? It's that we've been brought into God's family, but it didn't just happen naturally. God adopted us. And that's part of the beauty of adoption, is that element of choice. If you were adopted, you can look saying, my parents chose me. It wasn't an accident, but they selected me. And so it is with the people of God to say, we're a chosen family of God. God has called us to be his kindred. What an amazing reality. What a high calling. And he's called us really out of poverty into great riches. Here's what James 2.5 says. It says, listen, brothers, hasn't God chosen what's poor in this world? Hasn't God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he's promised to those who love him. So God called us into his family out of poverty and has made us rich in the faith and even heirs. A child is an heir of the inheritance and the inheritance we've been given in the family of God is an incredible, beautiful inheritance. And so being a part of God's family, it shows something of our status our wealth, and our privilege. There might be certain last names that if you saw someone, uh, if you met someone with the last name Gates or DeVos, you would assume certain things about the status or wealth or privilege they come from. But how much more if we identify as, I'm a Christian. I'm of the Father who owns all things. My Father's the one who can so richly provide. We have such incredible privilege and provision through our family identity. Secondly, we're called royal priests, a royal priesthood. This is our vocational identity, you could say. It's our calling, what we're called to do. Uh, A double vocation here. The word royal is the same word kingly. We have a kingly calling and we have a priestly calling. Priests were primarily called to serve God, whereas kings are primarily called to serve men. And so we serve in these two directions, vertically and horizontally. And though we sometimes maybe feel like our daily tasks are mundane or boring, we're called as a church to be kings and priests. Priests who worship God. Just earlier in the passage we read, God talked about that he's building us as a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Our sacrifices of praise, our lips giving thanks to him, the sacrifices of our lives in service to him. We're called to be priests, but we're also called to be kings. And a king exists, if he's a good king, for the good of his subjects. He exists for their care and provision. And that's what we're called in our spheres of influence, to be like kings in them. James 2.8 talks about fulfilling the royal law in Scripture. And the kingly law in Scripture is to love your neighbor as yourself. We're never more kingly than when we're loving people. So this is our vocationally calling. In a sense, to be a pastor and to be a priest. We're all called to minister as pastors and priests 
in our pastors and princes in our own areas. So that's our vocational identity as a church and as people in the church. Third, a holy nation, a holy nation. This is talking about our cultural identity. Again, I think the word nation here is not a super helpful term. This term nation is actually most often in the New Testament translated as Gentiles. Gentiles. And this gives us a clue how this is used, especially in this book, how Peter uses it. And here's what he says. Um, Peter says, just after these verses, that we're not to live any longer in the lusts of the Gentiles. That's the same word for nation here. We're not to live in the lusts of the Gentiles. And then in chapter 4, he calls us to live in integrity among the Gentiles. So this is talking about a culture, a culture that would want us to live in their lusts, whom we need to resist those lusts, and in whom we need to live in integrity. We have a culture of holiness in the church that's separate from these cultures of which we're a part. And the difference with the Old Covenant to the New Covenant is that in the Old Covenant, they were a set-apart culture away from other cultures, were to be a set-apart culture within our culture. Within our culture, in the world, but not of it. A holy nation, our cultural identity, but fourthly, a people for God's own possession. This is what I'm kind of talking about is our national identity. This word people is referencing a people group of the same stock and language a more locational group than a cultural group, people under the same rule. And this, uh, uh, if you remember the old King James translation of this, it talked about a peculiar people. And the idea is the same, that a people, and these are the two ideas here in this term, a people that have been purchased by God, and now a people treasured by God. Uh, if you've ever bought something really expensive, uh, kids, maybe you Uh, saved up your money hard and bought something you really cared about. And so you bought it and then you treasured it. And that's what the church is to God. Something he bought by paying Jesus' blood is what the first chapter told us of Peter. He paid the blood of Christ to buy us that we would be a people ruled and governed by him. A people in his kingdom. And it's so good to be God's subjects, to be his servants, and to be the servant of a perfect master is a great joy. So church, this is our identity collectively, but also then individually for all believers. Our family identity is that of those who are chosen and beloved by our heavenly father. Our our vocational identity is that of kings and priests called to serve God and to serve men. We have a cultural identity of holiness, of not living after the lust of the flesh. And we have a national identity as citizens of heaven, citizens of of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as this identity goes deep in us, as we percolate in these truths, as it were, and really receive them, and really embrace them by faith, they have profound effects in our lives. Profound effects in our lives. And here we'll see what is supposed to come out of this. What does this identity do? We see in verse 9b, this is our responsibility. First, all right, your identity, but now our responsibility. It is that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Why have we been given such glorious, such great privileges in God that we may proclaim his excellencies? 
And what does this mean? This word proclaim, is to, it's to publish, to show forth, to spread abroad the goodness and excellencies of God. God's excellencies are his moral attributes, his moral perfections, his goodness, his greatness, to spread it abroad that all may know and see how great and marvelous and mighty is the Lord our God. Really what this is, is to glorify God. To glorify God is to make known, to show forth how excellent he is. To show and tell how great God is. Do you you guys remember show and tell? I loved show and tell uh, when I was in elementary school. But the idea here is that you take a cherished object and you show it and you talk about it. And what's the goal? The goal is that everyone else there would go, wow, that is an awesome experience you had. That's a super cool toy that you had, have. And so as Christians, this is what, how we can glorify God. When we speak of God in such a way, and we live in such a way that shows to the world that he is valuable. When we speak and live in such a way that the world sees that God is more valuable than all else, that he is that treasure in the field that we live to accept that his reputation increases, as it were. And so as we embrace and live out of this identity of, as the people of God, as we live out of these privileges, God is glorified and the world sees the results of his transforming in our life. And it's a witness. So as we live out of these identities, each one of these identities witnesses to the excellency of God in a particular way. And this is the main thing I want us to see tonight in application is how living out of these identities shows before the world that God is good. That is how each of these identities witness. And these, the four witnesses I want to show you are the witness of peace, the witness of purpose, the witness of purity, and the witness of priority stemming from each of these identities. Peace, purpose, purity, and priority. So first, when we think of our family identity. As you see yourself more and more as a beloved child of God, what you are filled with is peace because you know that your father is good and your father is rich. He has your best in mind and he is willing and ready to care for you in every situation. And the more you see this, that he has chosen you and set his love on you and has so much in store for you, you're able to be a non-anxious presence in a world of anxiety. Anxiety is rampant everywhere you go. And to be able to come and be that non-anxious presence among an anxious world, it testifies to how satisfied you are in your heavenly father and how trustworthy he is. This is the witness of peace. Secondly, there's a witness of purpose. As you embrace your vocational identity of being a king and a priest to God, this transforms your everyday life in that it imbues the mundane, the ordinary, the everyday, it fills it with meaning and it fills it with purpose. Because, and here's a beautiful truth for all Christians here, no matter how lowly or whatever you think your daily tasks are, each of us has an equal opportunity every day to glorify God. We all can seek to glorify God in how we do everything, in how we look to him. How, and how we thank him in our attitudes. 
we all have this priestly calling that, wow, no matter what I'm doing, I can glorify the living, reigning God while I do this? That's incredible. I can bring a smile to the face of my creator by how I live. What an amazing um, sense of meaning to have in your life. But also our kingly identity. And this is a way to think of whatever sphere of influence you have in your life, whatever um, areas of authority or influence or responsibility you have, look at yourself as a king over it, in a sense. That God has given you things to steward and to care for, for the good of others. Let me give you some examples here that I think might be helpful. So, boys and girls, if you have been given the task of, say, washing the dishes after dinner, you need to see yourself as the king of the dishes. Now, what does it mean to be the king of the dishes? What this is is saying, I've been given this responsibility, and I have a task to bring order to it, to bring completion to it. And so I am going to rule my laziness, and I'm going to rule this project for the service of my family. Because as I do this, I'm loving my other family members who are freed from this task, perhaps, at this time. I am loving my family by facilitating the ongoing good of the household. And as you see yourself as a king to rule what you've been given for the good of others, it brings meaning in what you do. If you're a parent, you're not just a parent, but you're a king in the household, tasked to cultivate life and peace and blessing for the good of all those in that society. In the society of your household, the calling of a king to provide and protect such that the household would flourish. What a beautiful calling. Or at your work, if you saw yourself as one to take dominion over your tasks given to you for the day, in order to, say, love your employer, or to love your clients, or to love your customers, you can imbue that task with meaning as you do it as a king for the sake of loving others. Your main way that you love your neighbor is by serving them in your everyday work, the exercise of your kingly identity. So that's the witness of purpose. And as people see a life filled with purpose, instead of the meaninglessness we see all around us, that witnesses to God, and it witnesses to him that he provides such joy and meaning for his people. But thirdly, the witness of purity. As we embrace our cultural identity, to be a culture of holiness, what this means is that we then learn to separate ourselves from a world that really lives after its lusts, that runs after food and drink, sensual pleasures, greed, materialism. And it is actually can be a shock to people that you don't run with them. And Peter says this later on, they're surprised when you don't run with them to follow the lusts of the flesh in the same way that they do. And so when we witness by our life of refraining from living according to our base senses, we witness to the world that we truly believe that God's ways are best, that God has wise and good paths for his people, that all his paths are pleasantness, that all his ways are peace. And as we live as a culture of purity, it witnesses to the goodness and wisdom of God before a watching world. And so in that way, we proclaim his excellencies. The witness of purity, and lastly, the witness of priority. When we see ourselves as a people for God's own possession, a people 
bought and redeemed by the blood of Christ, brought into fellowship with the Son. This radically transforms all of our priorities. Because 2 Corinthians 5 says that the love of Christ compels us not to live for ourselves, but for him who died and for our sakes was raised. We're called now to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We are to be people of single-minded devotion to the king of all kings. And as we are people that the world sees prioritizes God and the things of his kingdom, he is glorified because he is seen as a wonderful ruler. He's seen as a beautiful savior and a brilliant redeemer. As you prioritize, your, perhaps in your family, you prioritize Sunday worship over participation in sports. That witnesses to the world. As you, as parents, prioritize your calling from God to raise a godly family over all the ways you could just be enjoying wealth and recreation on your own. It witnesses to the goodness of God. As you spend the first of your income in giving it to the service of God and the growth of his church, you witness to the world that money isn't your treasure, but God is. As you give every day the first and best of your time to the Lord, for prayer, for meditation on his word, you witness to the world that sleep isn't your priority, even energy isn't your priority, but God is. Our priorities witness of the goodness of God. And so as we live in all these identities, as we become people of peace, people of purpose, people of purity, and people with godly priorities, we witness to the world of the preciousness of the cornerstone. And people will notice. There will be an impact here. And the temptation then that comes when people see our lives, when they see the blessings of God in our peace, in our purity, the temptation can be to try to take the credit ourselves. The temptation is to say, you're right, I have really learned to be a peaceful person. Or, you're right, I have really gotten good self-control and I walk in purity in my life. But that's why Peter goes on that we never forget our gracious story. This is a um, short last point here, just our story. Our story reminds us that all is from God. None is from ourselves. All is a gift from him. Here's what he says. We're proclaiming the excellencies of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We, church, have such a beautiful story of love and acceptance. And so as we're reminded of this story, not a people, now a people, given a new identity in Christ, this allows us to resist pride, but then also to resist just being comfortable with same old, same old. How could we not speak of this God who's brought us out of darkness into light? How could we not make his name great? How could we not speak of him who has done so much for us? How could we be proud thinking that I've accomplished this? I've given myself this identity? No, all is from God. And so because all is from him, all is to him. All the glory then goes to him and not to you or I. So what's this story? It's one of identity transition that we who were not a true family have become the family of God, fully loved, 
fully accepted in a greater way than we could ever experience in a human family. It's a story of going from people milling about in purposelessness and meaninglessness to now we're kings and priests, given royal privilege, priestly access. It's the story that we who were once impure, so running after the lusts of our flesh, so running after the basest, lowest parts of ourselves, now being made a holy nation, brought to a new culture of purity, made God's holy people preeminently in Christ, called to live up to that. And that we've been brought from being people scattered about the earth, um, living for ourselves, to being bought and brought to live and serve our master, our Lord and King. We've been brought from rags to riches. We've been brought from poverty to preciousness. That we would really get this, church, that we would really take in this story, drink in this story, and live out from this story. And our identity changed, and how does this passage say it happened? You had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Mercy is God's compassion being exercised in his goodness to those who are pitiable. Out of compassion, God doing good to those who were really to be pitied. We're told in Colossians 1 that our Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us, transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. How did we gain this new kingly identity? It was through the redemption that is accomplished through the shedding of Christ's blood, his blood that paid for all our sin, that we might be bought to belong to a good and wise master. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says that you know the grace of the Lord Jesus, that though he was rich for your sakes, he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Such a rich identity for the people of God. And this is the truth, that Christ was brought low, that we might be lifted so high. Christ was forsaken of the Father, that we might be loved and accepted and adopted by the Father. Christ paid the debt to release us from slavery, that we might now serve a new and good king with joy and liberty. We have this new identity because by faith we become identified with Christ. Identified with Christ in his death and resurrection. And because we are united to him, we have everything that the Father gave to him. All the love that the Father had for the Son, he gives to the church that is in him. He gives us a new identity, an identity that was first held by Christ, the perfect Son, the perfect King, the perfect priest, the one who was perfectly pure, the one who perfectly served the Father. And we get all that in him. That's our identity. And so now let's live up to it. Let's live out of it, that the world may see the preciousness and glory of our King. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're humbled as we think of just what you've done for us, that we've been given so much. We've been given such riches, such glories in Christ. It's almost too marvelous for us that you would select such as us and lift us up to heavenly places, 
to make us even to be united with the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, would our hearts be full of these truths? Would we glorify you for your mercy? Would we praise you for your grace? Be those who daily lift up our hearts, lift up our voices to you, thanking you for who you are, for what you've done, and for what you've done for us, for everything Christ is to us. Lord, would we live as kings and priests on this earth, serving you, serving everyone in our paths? Would we live like we're truly loved by our Father? Lord, would we as a church live as a holy people to be pure in a time of darkness and impurity? And Lord, would your kingdom and your name be our priority? That in every decision we make, everything we do, that your honor, that pleasing you would be our great goal and priority. Lord, we know we fall short in this in so many ways, and so we ask that you will forgive us for all our failure in Christ, knowing that you will for his sake, because he has paid for it all. So we pray all this to you in his name. Amen.